Welcome to Strange Bedfellows Podcast, where no question is too dark, no topic too taboo. Join us to explore sexuality, self-help, and politics with our expert guests and friends. We believe that sexual rights are human rights and that we can all create a brighter world through education and conversation. I am a parent, I am a certified holistic sex educator, I am a longtime sex worker and adult industry entertainer. My name is Elle Stanger and I'm a host of Strange Bedfellows Podcast. My name's John. You might know me as the audio engineer and editor of last season's podcast. I'm now returning as a co-host for season two. I'm a 22-year-old gay man and activist who will share my perspective in the coming season. Join us while we explore and uncover the things that make us squirm, make us shiver, make us tingle in delight. Because sex and politics can make for some very strange bedfellows. Welcome back to Strange Bedfellows Podcast. We are here with Catherine Friedman, who is a therapist offering treatment in psychotherapy and specializing in PTSD, depression, anxiety, trauma, grief, and loss. Catherine also specializes in sex therapy and couples and relationship counseling. Um, I'm reading this right from your lovely website. Stumptown Sex Therapy says that Catherine works with many clients who are trying to manage the aftermath of childhood emotional trauma, abuse, and neglect, such as adult children of alcoholics and adult children of parents with personality disorders. Catherine also specializes in working with clients with chronic relationship difficulties, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which no surprise, if you have the previously mentioned, you'll probably have the latter. Exactly. (laughs) Catherine is available for contact at stumptownsextherapy.com, or you can follow her on Instagram at stumptownsextherapy. So hi, John. Hey. Good evening. Uh, Good morning. So (laughs) Catherine. Yes. We met at a training for... Um, sex therapy or sex ed professionals. Mm-hmm. We hit it off right away. Yep. Uh, we have a couple things in common, but also um, I'm so here to learn from you. Um, I got to witness this beautiful scene where you were tied. Yeah. Uh, in rope. Which, yeah. Um, we've talked before a little bit in previous episodes here how it's kind of a tricky gray area for licensed professionals to interact with hot button issues like sex uh-huh. work. Yeah. And, uh, sexuality so I want to ask you first how did you get started with any of it any of psychotherapy or kink okay so I started with psychotherapy because I had taken a bunch of other paths in my life and then I wound up being a yoga teacher Um, Mm. and as a yoga teacher I didn't feel like I had sufficient skills to address what my students were coming to me with. They were coming to me with emotional issues that I wasn't trained to help with and I wanted to, but I also wanted to be equipped. And I sort of asked myself one day, what do I want to be when I grow up? (laughs) Can I ask how old you were at that point? I was like, how old was I? I think I was 30. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good time. Yeah, I think I was 30, Mm -hmm. maybe 31. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, I realized that, well, and then I was like, well, what do I like to do with my days? And I was like, well, I really like to talk to people. I really like to have good, juicy, deep conversations about what's going on in people's lives and what they really think and feel and believe. 
And then I asked myself, what's the most important thing in my life? Like what's helped me the most in my life? And the answer was therapy. Mm. So then the answer became really clear. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got started in there Mm -hmm. or how I made that choice. Mm -hmm. That's great. And then, so at what point were you able to integrate kink into, do you integrate kink at all into any of the clients you see or do you feel like you're just, you're kink aware? Um, I am kink. I, I consider myself kink fluent. Okay. Um, my own kinkiness came or my, um, my jiving into my own kinky impulses came far later than my actual engagement as a professional in psychotherapy. Um, but now what I do is that, um, I, I come out as kinky to any clients that come to me with concerns about themselves as kinky or who are sort of tentatively um, testing the waters because I want to normalize for them and let them know that they don't have to educate me. Mm -hmm. And I bring it up only because otherwise we're not really going to probably talk about your kink life very much at all or at all. But I bring it up because a lot of people who go into kink are like, God, why does this feel so good? And then they realize, oh, there's studies that show that people can do role play and it can be very therapeutic Mm -hmm. or whatever. So there's a little bit of a crossover there we wanted to acknowledge. Yeah. Yeah. So are there some, you said that in serving your yoga population, you noticed that you couldn't really address all of the issues. So what are some of the commonalities that you were seeing with um, people with anxiety issues? So anxiety is a big one. Um, I would say that the most common thing with people with anxiety is that they worry a lot, Mm. right? That's like, and then there's also that they have a kind of internal energy that doesn't feel good that they don't know how to get rid of. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that can show up in so many different symptoms, right? It can show up in um, like, obsessive compulsive behaviors like checking doors, checking mirrors, counting uh, how many keys are on a keychain, mm-hmm. going and checking the oven, going and checking the door, needing to take photographs of the door to know that it was actually locked, right? Wow. Um, so those kinds of things that can show up in eating disorder behavior, mm-hmm. it can show up in addictive behavior where people are using drugs in order to control the way they feel, whether that's up or down. Mm-hmm. Um, it can show up in incredible physical discomfort, tension, feeling as though their veins are sort of full of battery acid. Mm. It can show up in like compulsive calling people in order to get reassurance about anxieties that they might have about an interpersonal relationship. God, you've like checked all my boxes. (laughs) (laughs) All of my, I've like, I've done that. I've done that. I've done that. And I inherited a lot of it from a couple of very direct caregivers. And I know that, you know, I know that. Um, The taking, like, I know that you're just pulling things like examples from wherever, but yeah. So I definitely have a lot, worry is a lot, but the most recent, I definitely have some OCD. We got a a letter. Someone was upset that I had, I had mentioned having OCD and I think they thought I was joking. Oh. So like all this stuff you're naming, I'm like, oh God, I do all that shit, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. But it's, it's when it becomes, when the behavior becomes unmanageable is when it becomes unhealthy. So it's like in theory, yeah, checking the door is nice, but the worrying about it and obsessing and doing it you know, worst case scenario, like driving around the block and coming, returning home four times to check it. 
exactly out of control. Yeah. I have this saying that I, or this thing that I say to my clients in relation to any kind of sort of mental health issue is they'll be like, is this okay? Is it normal? And I'm like, it's not a problem if it's not a problem. But mm-hmm. if it is a problem for you, then it's a problem, right? Mm-hmm. So there's nothing inherently wrong with feeling like you need to check your door. But if it's interfering in your life in such a way that you can't live your life the way that you want to, mm-hmm. then that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Distress. Is it causing you yeah, dis- distress? Yeah, exactly. Right. It's causing you distress. Same thing with, you know, erectile issues. It's totally. Like, is is your dick being soft for half the time causing anyone distress? No. Right. Cool. You're like many other, you know, couples. Yes. It's like when I fuck with B, it's like, why would I expect his dick to be hurt all the time? But we don't worry about it. Right. Because we know how that's how. And a lot of times just having information yeah. helps. But uh, okay, so John, what's coming up for you right now? same way like you said um like it checked all your boxes i was like yeah a lot of boxes got checked mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. sure mm-hmm. yeah and i didn't even put everything in there i no. mean <laughs> oh no yeah no i had to re- interrupt you yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i want our listeners to consider um if you have some anxiety issues you know what are the ones that maybe you could stop feeling bad about because it's not that like again i will put a thing over my hand to open a public door yeah. i know that's kind of silly to a lot of people but i'm aware that i do it and but it doesn't cause me distress, you right. know, because I'm not yeah. like layering my hand in gloves or something yeah. where I, I would, you know, like my child could still be like, why would you do that? And I feel like I can comfortably explain it. Um, but then otherwise, maybe realize some things that are unhealthy patterns you want to try to address or break free of. Um, what are some examples, do you think, of of these things making it difficult for people to socialize, yeah. or like date, have sex? Like the constant worrying. Yeah. The constant worrying is definitely kind of number one. Um, And within the constant worrying, having kind of having low self-esteem and um, always questioning their own motives and questioning their own behaviors and how people are going to be assessing them and feeling like they're being watched and being judged all the time. Mm -hmm. So do you think that some of those things could come from maybe... Um, a caregiver that swings really high and low. Yeah. Okay. So I had a caregiver who it was either when he's up, he's up and when he's down, he's down. Yeah. And it's like walking on a minefield. So I kind of, yeah, I'm like, no wonder I'm anxious about how people are going to react to my presence. Right. I mean, that's, that's straight out of attachment at what we talk about in terms of attachment, Mm -hmm. right? Kids need predictable environments in order to, Um, feel safe feel safe and secure and also for their whole systems to get organized around predicting that the world is going to be okay for them Mm -hmm. and I don't think you mean predictable like a solid nine to five schedule every day no not at all not at all but you mean like if I respond to mommy with a question is she going to scream at me right or is she going to offer me a hug and you know yeah exactly it's so it's more like are the people in my life going to be behaving in a way that I can readily relax around and predict or do I have to be on eggshells all the time because I don't know if mommy is going to be screaming at me or telling me that I'm the greatest thing in the world Mm -hmm. or so depressed that she can't like even respond to what it is that I'm asking. Mm -hmm. Yeah so that's just a way I think a lot of people don't even when we when they hear the words child abuse I think a lot of people think well I was never hit yeah you know nobody molested me but why do I have these things coming up that make communication and showing up difficult. Right. And that's exactly the kind of stuff that I generally work with is the kind of abuse that has to do with emotional neglect 
hmm. or emotional abuse. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I asked you earlier, and just one more time, I swear before I don't ask you about kink again, but <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> um, so in Portland and here, you said you're out as a kink practitioner. Yeah. Okay. So you could go to events and if you see a client, how does that, well, it would a work gray area. Well, here's the way that I handled it. I handle it. And mm-hmm. I talk to my clients about it explicitly. If I run into a client at the grocery store or at the movie theater, it's not actually really that different from running into them at a kink event. Mm -hmm. If somebody becomes my client, you know, and Portland's actually a relatively small town, um, I talk to them about how, look, if we run into each other outside in the not therapy room world, um, it's basically up to you whether you want to acknowledge me. I can't acknowledge any of my clients because I have to hold the fact that they're my clients confidential. If they want to acknowledge me, wave, say hi, introduce me, you know, whatnot, that's fine with me. Um, But I can't take the initiative to do that because my number one responsibility is to protect their confidentiality. Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of people who might be in therapy or counseling and their partners don't know about it or, you know, no. There's so, there can be stigma, you yeah. know, and it's also it's just a mandate of my licensing board. Nice. Right. And so I very strongly honor my li- and my licensing board and am proud to be licensed. And so that's important to me. But if you were at a kink event, you couldn't like take a client on as like a play partner. No, absolutely not. Right. I could, because I couldn't have a relationship outside of the therapy room with any client that I have in any way. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are, it's complicated because there are certain ways in which we can interact, but that would be totally inappropriate. Any kind of sexual or intimate connection is, is banned for life mm-hmm. between in, according to the way that I'm licensed mm-hmm. between the therapist and the client. Cause there could never really be informed consent or an egalitarian relationship. And it would just be inherently tainted. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are, yeah, and that's why some of those reasons exist. Exactly. Right. Um, and that's why people in the middle woman or middle person, middleman role, like me, I'm a facilitator. Mm-hmm. So, like, I choose to not become a licensed professional because, right. hey, I know so many excellent ones. I can <laughs> refer people there. And if you want someone to maybe get hugs, you can refer them to me, maybe. Right. Can you refer to legal adult entertainers? I think I can. Okay, I bet you can. I think I can refer to legal adult entertainment. I know you can't refer to illegal I sex workers. I cannot refer to any kind of illegal sex work. Right. Um so officially. You, so a lap yeah, exactly. So a lap dance in the club. I think I can recommend that like in the event I have a client who's having difficulty with intimacy and they might want to try it out in a lower stakes kind of um, emotional situation Mm -hmm. and see what it feels like to just be with another person's body in a respectful way. You know, on my end, I've had people tell me that their therapist suggested they go to a safe strip club. Like I've had... God bless you. I've had people show up at my lap dance for that reason. I don't know how many, but at least a couple. So I think that's okay. Yeah. I mean, I would probably do that. I'm fairly sure it's ethical. Yeah. Because it's legal. So. Right. Which is one more reason why we need to decriminalize prostitution. Oh my gosh. Because then people with other types of things that I can't provide for, I can't work with someone's erectile issues in the lap dance room. I I know how to. (laughs) 
But, right. You know, but I need, I would like a different venue for someone to, you know, or like further licensing or can yeah. you imagine if a certified sex educator could also work as a certified sex worker? Well, I think that would be incredibly beneficial. And I really, really, really wish that I could legally refer clients with sexual anxiety to sex workers. Thank you. And I know that I am not the only clinician who feels that way at all. Mm -hmm. um, but at this point, I can't because I have to protect my license. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, please do. You're valuable. <laughs> um, so. Can I just say that the one other issue uh -huh. around running into clients in a kink environment is that I'm also vulnerable there. And so I ask my clients to please not acknowledge me or, or depending on whatever our, our agreement is around that. Um, and also, if I am in my role as a kinky person, whether I'm playing or um, in my relationship, for them to please turn away or walk away, mm -hmm. because that's my private experience. And the kink community is small, and it's not beneficial for them to necessarily see that about me. It's mm -hmm. kind of up to them. It doesn't actually bother me that much. Mm -hmm. But I just want to make sure that they have the information to make that decision consciously mm -hmm. and to be prepared that they could wind up seeing their therapist in a situation that they're not anticipating. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, all right. So we're going to come back and take some sex and therapy questions. Cool. Cool. Hey everyone, it's Elle. I've said before that SpectrumBoutique.com has high quality, affordable, and ethically made sex toys for everyone. But did you know that Spectrum Boutique is also your place for gender-affirming tools such as dilators, compression clothing, packers, and harnesses? It's true! SpectrumBoutique.com wants you to enjoy your body and offers items to delight everyone. From experienced kinksters to curious beginners. Spectrum Boutique Online has books, tinctures, butt stuff, kegel tools, self-help sex writing, sex toys of course, lubricants. There is so much to discover on SpectrumBoutique.com and follow them on Instagram at ShopSpectrumBoutique to keep updated on exciting new items. Enjoy a flat rate shipping on toys and accessories in discreet packaging and use the code SBPDX to get 10% off your first order. That's SpectrumBoutique.com. Hey friends, are you sick of razor burn? Have your nethers cleaned up by the pros at Netherlands Wax in Vancouver, Washington, where experienced owner estheticians have performed literally thousands of Brazilian waxes. Netherlands Wax is gender neutral, sex positive, trans and queer welcoming, kink positive, and body positive. We are just over the 205 bridge in Vancouver, Washington. Worth the drive. Find us on Facebook, Yelp, or netherlandswax.com. Welcome back to Strange Bedfellows Podcast. We are your self-help sex politics podcast based out of Portland, Oregon, but for anyone, anywhere. We are talking with Catherine Friedman. You are a psychotherapist mm -hmm. at StumptownSexTherapy.com mm -hmm. or on Instagram at StumptownSexTherapy. Do you ever wonder about, you're not going to get kicked off. You probably don't post anything. Though. I don't post anything explicit enough. I'm careful about my photos mm. and I don't really post sexy photos. Mm. Um Occasionally, there's a rope photo, mm -hmm. nice. um, but yeah, I'm not. I'm not that worried about it. Good. Um, nice. I also try to protect it. So good. All right, so we're gonna take some listener questions. It's John. Uh, so we got a question where it said, 
I'm in a new relationship, and even though my boyfriend is patient and moves slowly with me, and I don't feel any pressure, I feel upset and sick and cry horribly sometimes after we have tender and loving sex. I have lots of coercion and forced sex stuff in my past, so this is frustrating because it's the first time I felt safe with a guy, and Mm -hmm. I don't understand what's happening. Yeah. So that was a question we got. Ooh, I identify with that. I don't really cry anymore. This reminds me of that article I read the other day, Postcoital Dysphoria. Oh. Yeah, crying after sex. I actually have a client right now who's dealing with this. It's pretty it's pretty difficult. Um So, what do yes. you what do you think? So, I would probably want a lot more information. Okay. Um let's dive into postcoital dysphoria a little and then maybe you can tell me more about what you think. Okay, this sounds is good. this is what uh I just read an article how PTSD can deeply affect a person's sex life and what to do about it by Kylie Rodriguez Cairo on Life Seen on HuffPost.com. So, it describes it according to Jill McDevitt, a mm-hmm. sex educator based out of San Diego. Uh, postcoital dysphoria, also known as post-sex blues or postcoital tristesse. Tristesse. <laughs> it's so French. French. How yeah. funny. Refers to intense feelings of sadness, agitation, mm-hmm. or anger after consensual, even pleasurable and intimate sex or masturbation. Mm-hmm. Symptoms of postcoital dysphoria include anxiety, depression, feelings of emptiness, melancholy, or crying. Yeah. So I've had that before and I was like, what's going on? Um, yeah, I would also like some more information, but what do you think? That kind of sounds... Yeah, I mean, it sounds similar. My hit is that just because the sex is tender and intimate and close and the partner is, you know, loving and patient doesn't erase the impact of the past sexual experiences on the body. Mm. And people can wind up, if they've had traumatic sexual experiences, they can wind up associating the sensations that people experiences during that people experience during sex, even the pleasurable ones, with negative experiences. Mm. And so that's gonna create a really complicated mess of emotions. Mm-hmm. Also, sometimes when they've had even really terrible um, traumatic sexual experiences, there is some pleasure that occurs, Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of shame around that, Mm -hmm. and that can create really complicated feelings Mm -hmm. about sexual pleasure and people's sexual identities in general. Arousal, non-concordance. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Again. Yeah. It's like if the physical area is being stimulated and you have a physical reaction. Oh, yeah, that would make me feel very resentful of the situation. And I would carry that for a while. And then there's all kinds of feelings that come up around, oh, my God, the thing that happened to me in the past. You know, it's it's just really difficult to disaggregate sexual experience in the moment from sexual experience in the past. Mm -hmm. They get lumped. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, doesn't it really it becomes kind of more wired into your nervous response? It gets wired into your whole nervous system and your whole um, unconscious sort of brain system right which is where most of the trauma stuff kind of hangs out in the body and so then when you have an experience that's even remotely similar to something that was traumatic it 
takes a long, what I would say to that client is it's going to take time. Yes. Oh gosh. It's going to take time. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't cry after sex anymore. Right. It's going to take a lot of positive sexual experiences and a lot of patience with these feelings to get to the point where you're not still dealing with these emotions. And also uh, maybe this will be a, a test and I don't know if you're ready to really see how patient your boyfriend is, but take a penis and vagina out of the equation for a while totally you know or or penis out of anus or out of mouth like if penetration was a big part of Mm -hmm. what you didn't like before that was happening um it's going to be hard to to maybe enjoy and relax so try to have some orgasms and some play and some touch that feels safe where you're not fucking yeah i might even take orgasm off the table for a while sure and take like genitals off the table for a while yeah and encourage them to just work with trust and pleasurable touch Mm -hmm. and eroticism and feeling safe with that um just to see where the emotional disruption starts you know, with what kind of intensity of sexual activity do they start to then have the post, um, the post sexy time negative feelings? Mm-hmm. What I used to do to feel better about my date rape situations that I had experienced as a teenager, um, as a young adult, what I would do is when I felt especially manic, um, mm-hmm. I would be like, I want to have rough sex. So that right. means let's get really fucked up. And then you're going to basically looks like you're assaulting me. And it feels good in a way, but I'm not doing this safely. And then I discovered BDSM and kink stuff. And I was like, oh, you can act out this shit and do it safely and not be balls to the wall on intoxicants. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know? Um, yeah. So take some take some penetration off the table. Yeah. Sensate focus. Sensate focus. Touch. Thank you. Touch yeah. therapy. Um, yeah. Let's do the next one. Let's see. So I'm an early 40s white man who is a parent and now in therapy for my past childhood abuse. Is it common for undiagnosed PTSD to manifest as ADHD-like symptoms? Do I really have ADHD? Does it make a difference in how I would approach treatment? This is a fantastic question. Oh, I love this question I love too. It. Okay, Don't you good. love this question? Yeah. Okay, good. We all love this question. Have we have anyone has anyone here ever been suggested to have had ADHD by a teacher or medical professional? Raising my hand. Raising my Alice hand too. Yeah. yeah. I have not, but I have a ton of clients who come in with a combination of PTSD and ADHD. Hmm. Yeah. And figuring out what is what. And I think part of it is that a lot of people don't actually know what ADHD is. Because mm-hmm. ADHD is a thing, but it doesn't just mean that you're dysregulated all the time or that you can't sit still or that you have difficulty focusing, right? It's much more sophisticated neurodiversity issue, really, mm-hmm. um, where people think about time in a way that's different from whoever the normed population is. Mm. And they have either difficulty with focus or really hyper focus Mm. because their brains seek novelty. So they have a really hard time doing things that they don't want to be doing because boredom is not something that they they can really tolerate. But if there's something that they're into, they could get stuck in it for 20 hours. Mm, John. (laughs) Yep. 
basically <laughs> me too me. and my child yeah yep. totally it's mm-hmm. like a real thing mm-hmm. and it fucks you over in school it really does school is not designed for oh this. i had this conversation with her at breakfast three weeks i found a piece of paper i think she she's seven by the way mm-hmm. but she's an accelerated school for math and reading okay right so she she'd shove this piece of paper and there was a note from her teacher on the top and he's like hey send this back in a week smiley face and it was from three months ago right and i was like honey you didn't do your multiplication she's really good at it by the way She's like, I know it's boring. I know how to do it. There you go. And I was like, sweetie, I'm gonna tell you a secret. You're gonna have to do a lot of shit. And once you show the adult <laughs> you know how, you get to do something else, you know, to some degree. But yeah. if, if you don't show them, they're gonna think you don't know how. Yeah. And so that was something, John, you might have, both of us, a lot of times my teachers were like, wow, you just don't do the homework. Like yeah. your grades are shit, but you're smart mm-hmm. when you yeah. want to be. Yeah. focused so I'm sorry tangent but yes oh my god that's so nice to hear from you Catherine that that's real yeah and I think it's really important because I as a clinician was poorly educated about ADHD and then I had a bunch of clients with ADHD and decided I needed to do some training to actually learn what it was like and then suddenly I understand and I also had a boyfriend who had it really badly and mm. I didn't recognize it and I learned what it's like for a person with ADHD to be in the world. It's not the same as somebody with PTSD. They're not the same thing. Mm -hmm. That's really nice to hear. Yeah. Yeah. And you can have one or the other or... Or both. Both. And they can look the same because sometimes, especially children who are traumatized, will have difficulty focusing or will be very distractible or will act out in ways that are similar to bored children with ADHD, right? Mm -hmm. But once you get into adulthood, the symptoms tend to, at least my understanding, and I'm not an expert on this, but they tend to differentiate a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And treating ADHD as trauma is not effective Hmm. because it just doesn't address the actual issues, which is that people's relationship to time and task are different from what we're normed to be like. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I would say to the caller or whatever we're called, the person who asked the question, I would say to them at this point, they should probably be evaluated for both PTSD and ADHD. Mm. And then based on that, they might need two different kinds of treatment or just one or just one, depending on what they get diagnosed with. Yeah. That's really interesting. I'm going to I'm going to think more on that. Yeah, it makes sense how they would get confused. It's the same if the kids agitated because they're looking yeah. over their shoulder because they yeah. don't know if someone's going to throw something at them or whatever. Mm-hmm. It might look like an attention issue, but it's like a safety issue. Right. Yeah. Being managed with hyper attention. Exactly. <laughs> oh, and we said it a million times, but we didn't break it down. ADHD stands for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder yay okay good and there's a bunch of different versions of it there's also a bunch of different versions of it really and i don't really know the nuances of that but there's like i my understanding is there's at least five different types that have been identified um because there's actually there's so much diversity within Mm -hmm. attention deficit issues Mm mm-hmm that's really interesting. Ooh, I'm going to use the industry as an example. Uh, this is something that has been mentioned before. So daddy issues come mm-hmm, up. Mm-hmm. So caregiver issues, whatever. Yes. Um, but I definitely have, I mean, I, I, I had an epiphany one day. I was standing next to the DJ booth. <laughs> and I, I don't remember if I was drunk or stoned, but I was somewhere not flat base rate. And I was like, oh, my <laughs> God. 
oh my God, I do have daddy issues. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but it really, it had to be like, I have trouble knowing how this person's going to show up in my life. Mm-hmm. But what it has made me is somewhat incredibly adaptable mm-hmm. to being performative. Sure. Or some kind of a sponge. So I think that sex workers in a performative environment who have abuse in their past um, are really, really good at putting it on, like putting the face on, you know, mm-hmm. and making shit manage. And it's really kind of somewhat of a strength because when you when you recognize that you're dealing with a client that reminds you of an abuser or like that kind of like narcissist model, sure, it's really easy to kind of manipulate that. Yeah. So I understand that I really think that what I have learned about the ego of um, masculinity, the way it's played out in my life, mm-hmm. is if I can just act stupid and agreeable and let them entertain me, I can get them to relax enough to give me money. <laughs> and then at the very end, I'm like, ha, 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 ha. I knew all along I was going to fuck you over. You know. <laughs> so this is how I work out some of my aggression with how I've been treated, um, not only as a child with the men in my life being like, oh, honey. Mm-hmm. You don't know what you're talking about. You're overreacting. Yeah. Um, so I think there's really cool ways that we can not only like try to move on from the shit cards we were dealt or how people raised us, but to figure out like, what are my strengths? How did I survive? Right. Exactly. In you know, what has this taught me about the world? Right. What you're describing to me sounds like the effective conscious use of a survival strategy. And a reframe and years of therapy. Right. You know? And then being able to transform that into moments of victory. Yes. Um, and so then, that sounds pretty good. Thank you. And yeah, so, and, but anyway, I guess I still have some, uh, you know, these people who in my life still exist that are still living. It's made me like that was a way for me to stop drinking alcohol. Mm. So in a way, you know, it's like, how do I break the cycle? Mm-hmm. And I think I encourage a lot of our listeners to, if this episode is really touching something for you, then how are you working to break any kind of cycle? Whether that's not having kids at all, or if you're having kids to recognize like, oh shit, I'm starting to do that thing my dad used to do. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, uh, one for me, I have to make sure that when I devote my time to my kid, I'm actually focused. Because mm-hmm. my dad was always trying to multitask. Yeah. So just being like feeling dismissed, like that's an example I feel yeah. comfortable sharing. Um, so that's something I have to check myself, not being like, no, it's okay, honey. I can do this outline while I play with you. No, I need to play with my kid, like an actual parent who can. So John, how are you taking care of yourself? Uh, these days pretty well. Do you come from a background of any kind of violence or? I'm going to be a little discreet about this one. Please do. Um, I do come from a background that is similar to the backgrounds that I work with. So what that means is that I have an intimate knowledge of growing up in a home that is not stable or safe because of the mental health or substance use of the people in it. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that sounds, yeah, again, very, um, very common for a lot of the listeners that I hear from anyway. Um, In terms of the relationship problems that people describe a lot of people, I think, fall into a relationship with folks they actually don't feel comfortable with communicating with at all. Yeah. Um, just from a power dynamic that formed early. Yeah. And didn't change. People often fall into a relationship with people that feel familiar, mm. whether or not that is what feels safe. Because their identification of family or love is identified with what they 
first experienced. Mm-hmm. And so even if the rest of us or a bunch of people around them would be like, that's not a healthy relationship. Why are you doing that? That person treats you like crap. Da 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 da. Those things feel like love and they're seeking uh, the opportunity to somehow transform the experiences that they had as children. It's just what we do. It's not mm-hmm. a conscious thing. We seek to somehow create a sense of victory over negative experiences that we had before. Mm-hmm. And so I think it happens a lot that people, until they do some therapy or some other kind of self-awareness work, will fall into uh, long-term patterns of repetitive relationships where they are bewildered um, by what they're finding, but they're also tricked into thinking that they are receiving legitimate love because what the partner is showing them as love feels so familiar mm. and so real. Yep. So if somebody's say a narcissist and they are going to love bomb you and tell you that you are the most important thing in the world and they've never met anybody else like you and that's what your narcissistic father did or your mm-hmm. narcissistic mother did, mm-hmm. that's going to feel exactly like what love is supposed to feel like. Mm-hmm. And or what then, you were told. Yeah, it's home. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when you discover the negative qualities of that, you're going to fall right back into the cycle of, well, they told me they loved me so much and that I'm the most important person in the world. These things they're doing right now must be about me. They couldn't possibly be you know, actually a shitty person or (laughs) treating me badly Mm -hmm. because we're seeing that person through the lens of a parent. And it's much easier for people to blame themselves for feeling unloved Mm -hmm. than to take the parent or the loved one off the pedestal. Mm -hmm. That's damn. That's good. Um, If you are a co-parent listening, this is really important. I was getting coffee a couple weeks ago and the barista asked, where are you going? And I was like, oh, bringing her to her dad's house. And he's like, God, I used to hate that when I was a kid. And I'm not a child of divorce. So I was like, oh, tell me more. And he's like, well, they would just they just fight and it would just felt I just didn't like it. And so it's like, oh, my God, this kid still remembers that. Like Mm -hmm. he might associate seeing me bringing her to her dad's now with that feeling every time poor guy if it was that impactful for him so if you're a co-parent and you're on horrible terms with each other please try to not show that in front of the kid because the kid's attached to probably both of you and so they're going to internalize it like well if mommy hates daddy and daddy's a piece of shit but i love daddy so does that make me wrong for loving dad you know like don't do that to your kid like it's it's don't make them choose sides like at all. I'm so grateful me and my ex-husband don't do that. It's she's such a happier child for it. Mm-hmm. So even just like thrusting anxiousness onto the kid in in any way, just try to avoid it in any way. If they don't need to deal with your shit, you know. Yeah. And if you do, just acknowledge it and own it. I mean, one of the things I always talk to people about parenting is that you don't have to be perfect all the time, but when you when you mess up, mm-hmm. acknowledge that to your kid. Mm-hmm. Let them know, you know what? I didn't do that right or the way that I most would have preferred to. Mm-hmm. I'm really sorry. Mm-hmm. I make mistakes sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that'll make your kid more likely to apologize too. Yeah. Because you're modeling that behavior. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm really into preventing perfectionism. <laughs> I like that. Are you in the San Francisco area searching for a dominatrix? Do you need someone who can lead you in kinky, legal, safe play, such as sensory deprivation, sissification, human furniture training, or boot worship? 
Mistress Krisha Spanks is your SF Dom. Discover her on KrishaSpanks.com. That's K-R-I-S-H-A-S-P-A-N-X. And worthy applicants can request a session online or via cam. Krisha Spanks is a hedonist, secret keeper, humiliatrix, and visit her on Twitter at Krisha Spanks or KrishaSpanks.com. Are you looking to advertise your product or service to a growing worldwide audience? StrangeBedfellowsPDX.com wants to hear from you. Contact us, StrangeBedfellowsPDX at gmail.com to learn about affordable website and social media advertising. Whether your business is big, small, or weird, we offer sliding scale and affordable advertising. Email StrangeBedfellowsPDX at gmail.com to partner with us today. Welcome back to Strange Bedfellows, if you're listening. Uh, we also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash strangebedfellows. We are talking with Catherine Friedman uh, at stumptownsextherapy.com. Uh, climate change. Remember, we're calling it climate change. It's not global warming anymore. Yeah. Because while we are overall heating, there are microclimates experiencing cooling. So climate change is a better name for it. Uh, but there's an article on World Economic Forum, weforum.org, uh, depressed about climate change. Here's how psychotherapy can help. Uh, Catherine, you said this comes up. Yeah, it really does. And it's it's really started coming up more and more acutely that clients start to get very, very anxious and depressed about climate change because they are feeling as though they're powerless and they're feeling as though their future is pretty much foreclosed. Mm -hmm. Should I have children? How should I even think about retirement? Mm -hmm. Do I have any control over this? Mm -hmm. Will I have a future? Do I need to find a partner or should I just live my life not even bothering to try to find a partner if that's their goal in life? Mm -hmm. Um, And they get very, very anxious. And so clients who are already anxious will focus on this. And then clients who aren't even necessarily that anxious will get very anxious and depressed and we'll spend whole sessions talking about it. Hmm. So no, I found myself, uh, I knew that I was having a rough depression week and it was the week I actually cried in therapy, but I found myself just for two days really obsessing about the fact that it's going to be a lot hotter in 20 or 30 years. I don't mm-hmm. know if me and, I don't know if my child's going to be able to have outings like these. Oh my God, is my child going to even have Exactly. <sighs> exactly. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it that's difficult as a clinician is that it's not an unfounded fear. No. You can't be like, no, this is because of your daddy issue. Right. <laughs> no. In cases of people suffering from eco-anxiety and similar issues, the hope is to find paths toward a new world shaped by a deepening understanding of our relationship with the planet and how our future is ultimately entwined with the survival of other creatures. That includes the water cycle. So like even sushi like even cheap sushi go rounds oh my god Mm -hmm. i try to avoid those but sometimes i go to them because i'm like oh overfishing is going to collapse the food cycle and then we're not going to have any fish in 20 years but but it's also like as b pointed out he's like i'm poor and i'm gonna afford to eat where i can (laughs) so it's like just even navigating life is so stressful and that's a lot of what comes up for my clients who get involved with this kind of anxiety is that they feel like they have no good decisions that they can make in any possible area Mm. and that really amplifies feelings of depression Mm. 
Climate psychology is a different kind of psychology. Rather than see these feelings as something to be fixed or cured, we see them as healthy, understandable responses, human reactions that empathize directly with the planet. So that is really cool that people are getting proactive in response to these issues. <laughs> that also makes me feel more normal that there's a whole movement about this. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad other clinicians are speaking about this and experiencing it because it's really amplified in about the past six months to a year Yeah, in my experience. Jeez. Uh, so I wanted to go, we mentioned it a little bit earlier, but John, have you ever cried after sex? Um, actually, no. Really, no? Like, not immediately. The only time I ever... I don't even think I even cried. I just laid on the floor was the first time I had sex. Mm -hmm. And like the next morning, I just kind of laid on the bathroom floor and felt like really anxious for like three hours. Mm -hmm. But I've never cried after sex. Okay. My poor mostly boyfriends. I never did this to my women friends, actually. It's funny because we all had like similar sexual traumas. (laughs) I'm sorry. I laugh. But um, no, some of my... I really, really like unwittingly put some of my boyfriends through the ringer because... I would just have these horrible, like, freak out, sobbing, crying episodes after amazing uh-huh. sex, yeah. you know? And I was like, I don't know what's wrong. You didn't do anything wrong. I just need to, like, sob and just hold me, you know, like, why is shit from high school coming up? That's weird, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Not thinking, like, because a dick was in my vagina and that made me feel some other ways some other times, you know? Um, and I worked that shit out, again, with doing, like, rape role play. Yeah. Helped me a lot. You know, I had recurring um, memory that just does. It hasn't recur. It hasn't happened since I addressed it in a particular episode. Uh, by episode, I mean like play session would yeah. be. Um, so I really, really like. I don't know. There's just there was so many good things in the news lately. It gave me a very optimistic feeling <laughs> about our future. Perhaps like there are people that are working very, very hard to try to save humanity. Well, and I think that a lot of people in the sex therapy field who are interested in the potential role of kink in healing trauma are trying to figure out how to do that in a safe and um, sort of clinically advisable way. Mm -hmm. Because it can be, like you said, it can be unbelievably healing Mm -hmm. and it can also be really Mm re-traumatizing depending on how well you're making your decisions, how you're planning your scene, how much you trust your partner. And on your partner. Yeah, and on your partner and their ability to hold that space. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's not something I would lightly recommend for many people. But if they're here listening, I think they're big enough. Um, Ooh, this article says 46% of women reported experiencing postcoital dysphoria at least once in their lifetime, according to a 2015 study by the journal Sex Medicine. Uh, and a history of childhood sexual sexual abuse was found to be the most important predictor. Mm-hmm. A history of physical abuse, emotional abuse, and sexual assault in adulthood also appeared to be risk factors. Uh, uh, oh, similarly, in the Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy, same for men, so uh, po- postcoital dysphoria in men tends to be people with a history of childhood sexual abuse. So that's no surprise. Um, it says many survivors will disassociate or essentially tune out at the time an assault is happening. And this feeling can linger long after the abuse is over. In fact, disassociation is one of the common symptoms of PTSD, which makes it more difficult for sexual assault survivors to feel connected to themselves, their bodies, their loved ones, and the world around them. Um, this is, again, another 
I feel like um, at this point in some of my sex work that I've done like a thousand times over, easiest example is a lap dance that I really don't like. Mm -hmm. Um, If it's really full contact and it's like they're going to be touching my boobs and everything. And I don't really work in full contact club right now. But, you know, it's not really pleasant all the time. And you got their breath in your face. They might try to lick you and shit. But it's really easy for me to turn on my disassociate button. Yeah. I just stop feeling as much and I, I become robot and I know what to do. Um, and I think that's so powerful and rad. Well, in that case, it's a skill. <laughs> it is. It's That's not something I could do until recently. And I can't do it with a new stressful situation because my body reacts accordingly. It goes mm-hmm. into fight, flight, or freeze, or not freeze, but fight or flight. Um, but yes, it's a rad skill to have that I've like learned. I want to hear, I've heard from other sex workers that they can also do this too. Um, but if you are a person who is having trouble connecting to your partner, um, try to also figure out if there's any associations that you can change. Like maybe if you were, if any of your bad memories happened in a bed, try to not have sex in a bed or, you know, have touch in a bed. I think another factor that may contribute to this, um, postcoital dysphoria situation and that is really critical when we talk about, PTSD is grief because a lot of times what happens when people have a positive experience is that they realize all that they have lost and all that has been taken away from them by those negative experiences and they start to actually mourn having had these horrible experiences in the past. Oh, wow. That they may or may not have ever really had the opportunity to feel the sadness or the anger or the frustration or the powerlessness or the rage or what have you. Mm -hmm. And so there's the physiological component and the physiological association, but there's also the psychological component of delayed emotions. Because Mm -hmm. most people who experience, especially early childhood sexual trauma, have never had the opportunity to really just cry it out. Mm -hmm. Nobody was there to hold them afterwards. Mm -hmm. And they didn't get to complete that cycle of something terrible happened, oh my God, I found safety, now I can actually let out the emotion. Mm -hmm. And that cycle wants to be completed. Do you ever um, feel like you see people engaging in self-harm behaviors as a way to try to experience some kind of catharsis? I screen out people who do self-harm behaviors because I used to, who who do current self-harm behaviors because I used to work exclusively with clients with borderline personality disorder um, for a period of time, many of whom were self-harmers and self-harm is really, really lethal um, in a lot of ways. It's not always lethal, but it's very tricky to to deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, I have lots of Uh, not current, but former self-harmers in my practice. Mm -hmm. And I do absolutely think that one of the roles that it can play is catharsis Mm -hmm. and endorphin release and um, a feeling of control over what you're feeling in that moment, Mm -hmm. right? Oh, definitely, yeah. That that sort of thing, but it's Yeah, we've both been cutters before. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. right, so you, so is what I'm saying makes sense to both of you that that's what you experienced, yeah. Yeah. But it can also play other roles that are very, that are also very complicated and that can escalate in ways that are um, 
can lead to more lethal behaviors. Mm -hmm. And I'm very cautious with that. Mm -hmm. I definitely, here's when I feel bad about this. Um, In high school, I locked myself in my friend's bathroom with a Mm -hmm. bunch of knives. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I was scaring him. And part of me kind of enjoyed it. Right. That's the thing. So the attention getting. That's the piece. Is a thing. Is. Yeah. I really want to honor and um, respect the survival component of I'm going to control the way I'm feeling. I'm going to give myself maybe a rush. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to get high from the endorphins, like that piece. But I get very cautious about any possibility of reinforcing the what what is often called attention-seeking behavior. I, I, I really want to try to be as not negative about it as possible. Mm-hmm. But the way in which that can then cause people to escalate the way in which they harm themselves in order to get more attention. And it's not deliberate. It's strictly behavioral, right? Mm-hmm. It's this behavioral reinforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I currently don't work with. And mm-hmm. I recommend people work with people who specialize in that because it's very exhausting work. And I've done it and I don't want to do it anymore. That's fair. That's totally fair. Yeah, I should probably apologize to my friend. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, well, see, this is why, like, you know, I've been an emotionally abusive person to partners in the past because it was stemming from my own abuse. Mm-hmm. So, and that's why I went into therapy because I was like, oh, my God, like, I don't like me at all. <laughs> you know, and it was leading to unhealthy behaviors like al- alcohol abuse, you know, um, shopping addiction, right? unhealthy sexual behaviors. Like, this was all before I went into therapy. Right. And, you know, I make the joke now. I'm like, I'm fixed. But, you know, I'm better. I'm so much better. I would not be able to do this show if I was the same person. Right. Yeah. You know? And I think that really speaks to the question that you asked at the very beginning of the show about mm-hmm. anxiety behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. Because what you're describing is the kind of whack-a-mole of anxiety behaviors that often happens, right? So right now it's drinking. Then it's going to be compulsive shopping. Then it's going to be... Um, what feel like out of control sexual behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, then it could be bar fights, bar fights, cutting, done that, done that. All of the things. It could also be like spending hours and hours and hours doing nothing but video games. But it's ways that people John feel did attacked. That. Oh no! <laughs> I'm just but this is oh, no, no, no. It's a meme. He he means I feel seen right now. Yeah. Basically, Aww. not no. attacked. Yeah. <laughs> but no. that's that with people who have a a certain kind of trauma that makes them feel extremely negative, right? Or what we might call dysregulated Mm -hmm. all the time. There are these attempts to regulate through other behaviors that can be destructive Mm -hmm. for them, Mm -hmm. right? But, and those behaviors can be really inconsistent, right? It could also be baking 15 cakes. I mean, which Mm -hmm. isn't, which is something people probably wouldn't recognize as Mm -hmm. like a problematic behavior. But if you're staying up all night doing it, you know. I've seen some people where it's like the person you didn't know baked at all. And then all of a sudden they brought a ton of shit to everybody at work and they really want you to try it. And is it okay? Do you like it? I'm like, what are you going through? (laughs) 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 You know? <laughs> That's a thing. Thank you so much, Catherine Friedman. Thank you for having me. Thank you. If Thank you're in you. the Portland area and you're seeking services, can people find you? People can find me at uh, my website, which is stumptownsextherapy.com. My practice is currently full, but I am always happy to refer. And also, I have a waiting list. Nice. Um, and if you want to follow my writings on things like sex and therapy and kink and various other issues we feminism do. We do. uh i have an instagram which is at stumptown sex therapy cool thank you so much and then listen to the after show let's talk about who knows what on patreon.com forward slash strange bedfellows
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Strange Bedfellows Podcast. To find behind-the-scenes, photos, bonus clips, and journals from your guests and hosts, type www.patreon, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash strange bedfellows and join for only $1. Find us online at strangebedfellowspdx.com and Instagram at strangebedfellowspdx. You can find me, L. Stanger, on stripperwriter.com and Instagram as L. Stanger. Write your hate mail or sex and relationship questions to pillow talk at strangebedfellowspdx.com and find me, John, on Instagram at metric.cafe. Please rate and review our show on your favorite listening app. Thanks for supporting sex education and freedom of expression.